You know, that was a heck of a thing we just sang, right? All my life, you've been so, so good. Um, to declare that as just absolutely true. I hope you understand how big a statement that is. Because life doesn't always feel so, so good, does it? Right? And today, I'm, I'm excited to, to have the opportunity to, to, to look at what is, feels like kind of an obscure passage, but really walk that balance together today, where how do we declare that God is so, so good when everything around us isn't? Right? How do we walk that balance? I remember um, back when COVID began. Do you remember COVID? I'm sure you do. Uh, back when COVID began, like I, the, when it really just blew up, I was actually in Europe. I was visiting Andy and JC Johnson and their girls in Condern, Germany, and I was awoken to uh, 24 missed calls at 4 a.m. Uh, because President Trump said, by Friday, there's no more flights from Europe, you know, you got, and everybody was like, call me, like, you got to get home now, and so I called Andy and woke him up, and was like, first thing in the morning, you got to get me to an airport, and so we, we started that journey, and, and the day began as, you know, all good travel days do with a bomb threat, and so we all rushed in, and SWAT came in, and they scoured the airport, which delayed my flight into Paris, and I landed in Paris, and realized that they, they claimed there was still time for me to get to my plane. And so I did uh, what I call home aloning it, right? You grab your bags and you sprint as fast as you can through the airport. I even had the home alone music going in my head, right? And, and, and where I landed, of course, was the exact opposite side of where the next plane took off. And it was about a mile and a half, two mile sprint all the way through the airport. And I got there and I saw the plane and I was like, praise the Lord, I made it. And that's when the ticket agent said, we're not letting you on the plane, I said, you got to be kidding me. He was like, no, we're, we, we're going to shut the door. Nobody else is allowed on. I was like, it's right there. Like, I could walk onto it right now. And, and they're like, no. I was like, do you not see what's happening in the world? Like, can you just look around, you know, have a little bit of compassion? And then because so many flights are trying to take off, they delayed that flight, and it sat there for another 30 to 60 minutes, and they still wouldn't let me on it. And they said, you've got to go to customer service. And so I walk back to customer service, completely dejected. And some, uh, some French lady tells me, there are no more flights to America. You're done. And I turn around and I see, I just look at the scene and I realize I'm not getting home. Right? And there's people over here crying. There's two more people home alone across. There's cops over there. There's news people interviewing people, like telling them, like, tell us about your terrible travel experiences. And I'm like, the world is ending. That's what it feels like. And I did not know, even at that moment, just how traumatic that experience was until a month ago when I found myself with my wife and two older daughters in Germany and we had to fly home and I looked at the ticket and saw that we had to connect through Paris. And what rose up in me was a level of visceral anxiety. I was like, I never want to be in that airport again. And Karim was like, don't worry about it, don't worry. What are the odds? Like, it's, it's going to go well. And so we walk to our gate in Germany, and the first thing I see is flight delayed. And I actually say out loud, nobody's listening, but I just go, they're going to do it to me again, right? Because I, I, I'm just, I'm triggered at this point, right? And so we land in Paris, and we look at this thing, and it's last call still boarding. And so here, me, now with my wife and my two daughters, now we home alone it. Again, all the way across the airport, all the, like the mile and a half run, just dead sprint, and we get to the gate, and the plane's right there, and what do you think the ticket agent tells me? We're not going to let you on the flight. Now, there are not enough ways for a follower of Jesus Christ to be able to respond in that moment, okay? <laughs> I ran through about 20 of them that I wanted to do. It was like, none of these would be pleasing Jesus, and I want to do every single one of them. And what I eventually sputtered out in the middle of an aneurysm was, this is two times in a row you've done this to me, right? And that's when my wife grabbed my mom. I was like, no, this is not the place. And they said, you need to get to customer service. And I was like, I've heard that story before. And there aren't that many flights to America left today, and so you need to sprint. 
All right, so where's customer service? All the way back where you came from. So here we go. Home alone and across the airport again, full sprint on every path that we just covered. And we get to customer service and we are just dead, like just dead tired, covered in sweat, smelly, out of breath. And I get to the agent and I said, we need to be reassigned to a flight. And they said, they didn't tell you at the gate, we already reassigned you to a flight. I was like, all right, that's good news. Where's the flight? Guess where it was? All the way back where it came from. And here's the kicker, it takes off in five minutes, so you better run. I look, at the, I look at the girls, I'm like, do you have another one in you? Because I wasn't sure I did. And they said, yes, let's go. And so we took off running. And at one point, I just spit out to Corinne, I'm going to die in this airport. Like, I can't take another step. I'm just going to peel over and die right here. And we finally get to the plane. And this one they held for us. And, and, and I'm going on the plane. And they said, hold on, Mr. Parks. You've been, you've been picked out for a random security check. And I just threw, I threw my bag on the table and said, do whatever you want. I don't care if you let me on the plane. Like, I'm, I'm over it at this point, right? And eventually we did make it home. Now, that's a weird story to tell at the start of a sermon. I get that, right? It's going to be even weirder when you read our passage. Today. Like, how is he equating these two things? But I'm glad that you're here this morning, and I'm glad that you've set aside the time to be here, and I want to welcome each of you. If you're a guest, I especially want to welcome you. I know how hard it is to try someplace new, and if you would stop by our welcome desk, we have a gift for you for coming. But we are, as a church, we're going through the book of Mark. We're going through it verse by verse, and we're closing out chapter 6 today. And so if you have your Bibles, if you get them open to Mark chapter 6, and if you don't have a Bible, there's a black one, and the seat back in front, you get to page 893, and that's where you're going to find the end of Mark 6. And what's happening at the end of Mark 6 is, just, just to foreshadow a little bit, is Jesus is just bringing win after win after win. Right? In fact, I would say he's been on a hot streak lately in Mark. Right? The last few chapters, starting the second half of chapter 4, he has been along the Sea of Galilee, different coastal towns of the Sea of Galilee, and everybody whose path crosses with his, their life gets better. It's been miracle after miracle, healing after healing, answer to prayer after answer to prayer, lives change everywhere. It's, I mean, he's on a tear. But there's a question that I really want to ask this morning, and I've wanted to ask it for several weeks. Because it's a question I felt the need to ask for a while as we've journeyed through the book of Mark. And it's this. What about when life doesn't feel like that? I mean, yes, there are times when it feels like the Galilean coast and our walk with Jesus. Times when God is bringing blessings and answering prayers and doing things that only he could get credit for and it's wondrous and it's great and life is good and we're enjoying it and we need those seasons of life because they sustain us, don't they? But what about when we're in the Parisian airport? When scenarios keep changing and nothing feels certain and you're exerting a lot of effort but getting nowhere at all. And prayers aren't being answered the way you want them answered. And clarity and direction isn't coming. And your prodigal son or daughter isn't coming home. And this is an area that you keep praying for and laying for the Lord. And nothing changes. Or there's a gut punch coming around the corner that you couldn't see coming. What happens then? What happens in your spirit when you carry that baggage into this room and you read week after week of Jesus being like, fix that situation and moves on? What do those seasons teach us about our God? What's the best way for us to honor Christ in those times? 
And to actually wrestle with that, I want us to look at another passage in Mark 6 of Jesus just bringing immense victory and blessing and healings to people. To, to take a look at his power and compassion on display and then see if those actually can't help us know how to respond when we aren't getting what we hope for. When we aren't experiencing that. And so I'm going to invite Chris Mathis up to read today's passage for us. He's going to be reading for us Mark chapter 6, verses 53 through 56. And if you're physically capable, would you please stand with him to honor the reading of God's word? Good morning. When they had crossed over, they came to the shore of Gennesaret and anchored there. As they got out of the boat, people immediately recognized him. They hurried throughout that region and began to carry the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. Wherever he went into villages, towns, or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might touch just the end of his robe, and everyone who touched it was healed. Thank you, Chris. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. Uh, these are your people. This is your hour. This is your time, God. Everything in it is yours. And so we pray now that you would just illuminate this word. God, you'd, you'd use this passage to speak to each of us where we are, what we need to hear today. Lord, would you find us as humble, submissive responses to you. Get the glory from all of it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys have a seat. All right, so this section that Chris read for us, verse 53, tells us that Jesus and his disciples land in a place called Gennesaret, right? This is uh, just a quick geography lesson. Gennesaret was a, a four-mile valley area that, that, that bordered the Sea of Galilee. It was along the coast, and it, on, on both sides of it were these beautiful mountain ranges. So think about that. Like, you, you live in this, this valley, and on your left and right, you have these awesome mountains, and then out front is the Sea of Galilee. It was paradise, Right? It was literal paradise. It was, it was known in that region as the Garden of God. Uh, in, on top of that, it had incredibly fertile ground. It had perfect weather. It's the type of place that you'd want to live. It's the type of place we'd all want to live. But we see here that sin and suffering even reach paradise, don't they? Because when Jesus lands, he's recognized. Now, this, this shows us, again, just how much Jesus' fame continues to grow, right? Earlier in this chapter, we read of King Herod hearing about Jesus and making his theory. So kings are hearing about him. Now, he's landing in places like Gennesaret that he's never been before. And when you're getting recognized in the pre-internet area, at a place you've never been before, it's, it's safe to say your fame has reached a fever pitch. And it makes sense why earlier in Mark, he kept healing people and he's like, just keep it quiet, just keep it quiet, keep quiet. He's trying to contain that fervor for a little bit. But what we see here at the end of Mark 6, and the people of Gennesaret, I believe, is a genuine faith in pursuit of Jesus. Because without hesitation, once they hear he's there, right, they rush. They don't wait. They rush and bring their sick to Jesus. They, and they begged, like the sick people begged just to touch the end of his robe. Now, Numbers 15 in the law, right, it describes this blue tassel that, that Jewish men were to, be, were to wear at the edge of their robe that would remind them of the commands of God in the law. That's what they're wanting to touch. And I, and I pointed out to tell you this. This was not necessary. It was not necessary for any sick person to touch Jesus' robe. Right, maybe, maybe as a sick person, they didn't want to make Jesus unclean by actually touching him physically, so they just want to touch his clothes, even though he's already proven he doesn't care about that. Maybe there's some superstition here among the people of Gennesaret. Maybe there's just pure-blown ignorance, right? Maybe they'd heard the story of the woman that Jesus healed in Mark 5 by touching the edge of his clothes and thought that was the key to unlocking it. 
regardless of whatever the reason was, this, this is unnecessary. And yet we don't see Jesus correcting them and we don't see Jesus making a big deal out of it because what he sees is their faith in his ability to heal. He sees their faith in him. And so for him, that's enough. And in verse 56, everybody who touches the edge of his rope is healed. And so let's quickly break down what this passage teaches us about Jesus. And it's similar themes to what we've seen in the last three or four chapters in Mark. And the first is this, that Jesus' power is uncontainable. This has been a theme of Mark, especially since the second half of chapter four. And so let's just do a brief recap so we can just remember. When I talk about the hot streak Jesus has been on, let's just recap really quickly everything that he's done starting the second half of chapter four. In the second half of chapter four, he gets into a boat and he takes a nap and tells his disciples to travel across the sea. And while he's sleeping, this violent, violent storm comes up that terrifies all these lifelong fishermen. They all think they're gonna die and they wake Jesus up and be like, don't you care that we're all gonna die? And he gets up from the nap, he stands up and he says, hey, storm, stop it. And immediately the winds and waves cease, everything is calm again, and they can get to the other side. He gets off the boat, he's immediately confronted by a man with a legion of demons. This is hundreds, if not thousands of demons possessing this man. No one has been able to help him. He's cutting himself, he's living in the tombs, he attacks anyone that goes by, and Jesus just tells the demons, get out of him, and they go. Then he goes to Capernaum and he's met by a woman who's been sick for 12 years and spent all her money on doctors and no one's been able to heal her, no one's been able to help her and she touches the edge of his robe in faith and she's healed immediately. And he goes to the Jairus' house and Jairus' little girl is dead. She's not sick, she's dead. And Jesus raises a dead girl back to life. And then in chapter six, right, that Pastor Adam, Pastor Brandon been covering with you for the last couple of weeks, he feeds 5,000 men plus women and children, so who knows what the total was. And he does so by taking five loaves of bread and two fish and blesses them and thanks the Lord for them and begins passing them out to where everyone is, eats everything they could desire. They're full and there are 12 baskets of leftovers. He sends his disciples out onto the sea again. He goes up in the mountain to pray. He sees another storm come on them and they're struggling. And this is when he does probably my favorite thing he's ever done. He's like, I'm going to take a walk. I'm going to show the disciples how much powerful I am and all their rowing and all their strength and all their, and he just takes a stroll across the Sea of Galilee on the water and he passes them by. Finally, they freak out. They think it's a ghost. He tells them it's him and he gets in the boat and once again, second time, the storm is immediately ceased at his command. Then they land in Gennesaret and he's recognized and they bring all their sick to him and wherever he went, right? They, he, they brought those suffering and ill and in pain and too weak to walk and he receives them and blesses them and heals them all in a short time he changes so many lives in this town. And there's something that I wanna make sure we're all fully aware of because it's easy to read these events in the Gospel of Mark and, and see that they were 2,000 years ago and realize they all happened in a very short window of time and kind of leave them there. But do you know what the Bible says about Jesus Christ? Hebrews 13. Jesus Christ is the same, the same, yesterday, today, and forever. Colossians 1 says of him that he is before, not some things, he's before all things, and by him, not some things, all things hold together. Do you need to understand that the Jesus that we worship today, the Jesus that we pray to today, the Jesus that we sing to today, the Jesus that we follow today is the same Jesus who walked the streets of Gennesaret. 
This wasn't some one-time imparting of power for a season to Jesus. He is God the Son and the Holy Trinity. He is the creator, master, sovereign ruler of the universe. All of creation still bows to his every command. He is everything today. He has always been and he always will be. His power is uncontainable. The second thing we see matched with it always is that his compassion is unmatched. Yes, he's the all-powerful, all-sovereign master of the universe, but all of that power and authority have not made him unknowable. He's not cold. He's not distant. He's not aloof. He's not unapproachable or rigid. He's quite the opposite, actually. And we've seen this throughout the book of Mark, that it's his propensity for compassion is unmatched, right? He, he has consistently shown compassion to crowds who show up with all kinds of demands and wishes that were different than his plans, and what he feels for them is compassion, He's consistently shown compassion to his disciples who just keep getting everything wrong and keep misunderstanding his purpose and making a mess of things. He's consistently showed compassion to Gentiles when all of his people would rather him not. He's consistently showed compassion to the Jews when they completely misunderstood his purpose and why he came. He's consistently showed compassion to the sick and he's showed compassion to all those untouchables, all those people he shouldn't ever be around based on his culture's demands. He showed compassion to all. And the reality is that every single person that Jesus Christ came across was in actuality beneath him. That's the truth. He is the God of the universe. They were not. So there's not only no one above him, there's no one even close to the level. They're all beneath him, and yet he treated them all with compassion and patience and to be fully present, and he actually treated them as if they were more important than he was. And that is why, as his followers, we too have been called to that same ridiculous standard. This is, whether you know it or not, this is the hardest call in the Bible. It's the command that we break the most of any, and it's the one that we need his help with more than any, and it's in Philippians 2, which says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Do you know how hard that is? But how great is it that God never calls us to do anything that he hasn't done for us first? These people came to Jesus. He doesn't ever respond with impatience or annoyance or frustration. He has compassion. And when they come to him in faith, he heals fully and joyfully those who come to him. And we must recognize something this morning that's, that's important. Only, and I mean that word, only in Jesus Christ do you find that combination of power and compassion. This is why we're a Jesus church. It's why you need him more than you need anything else because you need his power and compassion in your life. It's why uh, Peter says in Acts 4, there is salvation in no one else. Let that be wrung out. There's nobody else that there's salvation in. There's no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. And the reason that's true is because you can only find this power and compassion in Jesus and therefore he's the only one capable of saving you. We are in desperate, desperate, desperate need of saving and compassion. Because all of us have sinned, right? And our sin has separated us from a holy God. Our sin is the reason that we suffer. Our sin is the reason that we die. Our sin is the reason that, we will, that, that our world is so messed up. Our sin is the reason that we are so messed up. And our sin is the reason that we will go to hell if it's not paid for. 
And we need a savior. We need someone who's both powerful and compassionate enough, so that, that's powerful enough to defeat our sin and to defeat death for us, yet compassionate enough to love us enough to do that for us. And that list begins and ends with Jesus Christ. You know what he said in John 10? Jesus said, this is why the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. Nobody takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own, and I have the right to lay it down, and I have the right to take it up again. I know, I hope you know how ridiculous that statement is. That is Jesus calling his shot. Listen to how he owns it with his language. I'm laying down my life. I'm doing it. I'm going to die for your sins. Nobody's forcing this on me. I'm in charge of this. And by the way, just as I lay it down, I'm going to take it back up again. I'll defeat my own death. There's nobody with that kind of power or authority other than Jesus. And you match that with this compassion, Romans 5. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his love for us in this, that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. And so you have in Jesus somebody who's powerful enough to pay the price for our sins and then defeat death. And you have in Jesus someone who loves us so much that he was willing to suffer excruciatingly for us to do it. Not for us who earned it, not for us who deserved it, for us who would reject him, for us who would rebel against him, for us even after we believe in him who will still disobey him and still keep on sinning, he died for us. You will not find that anywhere else, I promise you. And so if you haven't, we need to start here. If you have not yet, you need to, you've not placed your faith in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of eternal life, you must do that. Do so today. But if you do, be ready. Because Jesus changes the life of any who genuinely pursue him in faith. As you see, the people of Gennesaret did not have it all right. In fact, I would argue they would fail a theology quiz at this point. They likely didn't understand Jesus' full identity. They certainly didn't understand the purpose of the Messiah. They didn't get what he was doing. It didn't matter. Here's what they knew. You know what they knew? They knew they had a need they couldn't meet, and they believed Jesus could. And that was enough. There were sick people among them that weren't getting better, but they believed he could get them better. And so they didn't hesitate. As soon as they hear he's there, they run to get those in need of healing. We too, in order to find life in Christ, we don't need at the start to get it all right. We don't need to pass a Bible quiz. We don't need to understand it all. We just need to believe that we have a need we can't meet and that we owe a God a debt for sins that we cannot pay and we need to believe that Jesus can pay it and is willing to. And when we see those things rightly and we call out to Jesus to save us, he will forgive us. He will do it in full, freely and joyfully. And this doesn't just apply to our salvation. If we genuinely, humbly, and in faith pursue Jesus the rest of our lives for wisdom and for guidance and for help and for strength and for perseverance and for provision and more, he will meet us in our pursuit of him and change our lives. Now, please note, I didn't say he'll give you what you asked for. You might be wondering, well, if you feel that way, how do you explain unanswered prayer? Well, first of all, I'm not a huge fan of that term. God answers prayers. What we, call often, what we call unanswered is often answered. We just don't like the answer. We're being told no, we're being told wait, or it's, we're being redirected, and we're like, man, he's not answering the prayer. No, he is. You just didn't like it. But we still, 
We still have the promise that we'll be changed whenever we genuinely pursue Jesus in faith because it's in our searching, it's in our pursuit of him, it's in our asking and discovering and resting that he'll be transforming us and he'll also be protecting us. Philippians 4, don't worry about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And here's the promise. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Man, I'm betting most of you live long enough to know there'll be times when you pray about a situation and it doesn't change. There are times that you take a circumstance to the Lord and ask him to change it, and that circumstance doesn't change, at least right away. But what happens is we change. And in the process of seeking after the Lord in faith, we are the ones who's changed, which is a really good segue into what I've been wrestling with as we've gone through this section in Mark. As I mentioned, right, Jesus has been bringing victory after victory after victory. It's why, and don't, don't take this the wrong way, it's why in a weird way I'm really thankful for the story of John the Baptist's death right in the middle of chapter 6. Because surrounded by all kinds of miracles and all kinds of healing and everybody getting exactly what they wanted from God, we read of a faithful prophet being arrested for doing nothing wrong and then being murdered. Jesus' cousin, whom Jesus loved and was close to, the one Jesus called the greatest born of a woman, the one who was faithful to prepare the way for the Messiah, and there is no victory for him. There's no miracle, there's no healing, there's no deliverance. He gets his head chopped off. And the reason why I'm, th- I'm glad it's there is sometimes in life it feels like you're in Gennesaret. It's paradise. The blessings are flowing. The, the grace of God is just covering your life. Prayers are being answered. You have success after success. Winds are piling up. And in those seasons, hear me, don't feel guilty about them. Enjoy the heck out of them. Ride them out. Like you need those, right? And if that's you today, praise God. Seriously, like praise God. Turn your praise to the Lord. Don't, don't ever put your hope in the gifts that he's given you. Don't ever put your hope in the time and the season you're in. Put your hope in the giver and let gratitude and humility and worship define your posture this morning. If you're in paradise, enjoy it and thank the Lord for it. But sometimes it feels like you're in Herod's prison, doesn't it? Or the Paris airport. Really, for me, they're interchangeable, Right? where you're seeking clarity and you're getting none. And you're experiencing far more frustrations and taking far more losses than wins. And you're seeking the Lord, just like John. You know, John sent messengers to Jesus. He's like, Jesus, help me understand what's happening. Help me what's going on. And he stayed in prison and died there. And you watch as others get the victories that you were praying for. You watch as others get the very thing you were asking God for. And you were waiting on the Lord, but the only thing you've been told thus far to keep waiting, you've, you've been pleading for a situation to change, and it's not changing. You've been pleading for a healing to come, and no healing comes. And, and you wonder, God, what, what is happening? What do you do in those seasons? How do you handle it when things aren't going your way? Do you, do you, do you, do, what I would first say is this. Don't miss the reality here. That here at the end of Mark 6, Jesus is making an awesome scene in Gennesaret, but only in Gennesaret. There were sick people, a town over, two towns over, three towns over, who stayed sick that day. They weren't healed and didn't recover. What What would we tell them? How do we respond in those times? Well, a few things that I think I hope will be helpful to you. And the first is this. Keep reminding yourself that he can. 
He can. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Jesus we read of in Gennesaret is the same Jesus that you pray to. He can show up in an instant today. He can, he can show up in a second and fix everything. He can show up in a second and heal. He can show up in a second and save and redeem and change. He remains fully capable. There's nothing in front of you, no matter how big it seems, that's bigger than him. Which means it's not hopeless ever. Just because something hasn't happened to this second doesn't mean it won't happen. You cannot project current trends to future trends because we serve an unpredictable God. And so don't stop believing, don't stop hoping, don't stop asking, don't stop seeking. Keep reminding yourself that, 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 that your Jesus has a power that's uncontainable. But while you do so, also this, keep reminding yourself that he's good. And here's what I mean by that. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ this morning, your name is written in the book of life. Your sins have been forgiven forever. Jesus has made a way for you to have life for all eternity. And one day you're going to trade in this mortal, perishable body for an immortal, imperishable body that's raised in glory. And there'll be no more separation between you and God. And there'll be no more pain or angst or grief or suffering or tears or death because he will have made all things new forever. And that is your future and reality. And you did not earn this. It's a gift. Because Jesus loved you enough to take the whip and to take the nails and suffer excruciating and die not for anything he'd ever done wrong, but to pay your price and to bring you into his presence forever. And what that means is this. If he doesn't give you one more thing the rest of your days, if he never answers another one of your prayers the way you want him to, if your life is marked by complete misery and suffering from this day until that day, he has already been incredibly good and gracious to you. That debate is over. That case is closed. He's been far better to you and to me than we deserve. That's been decided. And so when you're confused and you're hurt and you don't understand what he's doing, and you're wondering where he is, and you're wondering what in the world he's up to, and you're wondering why others are in Gennesaret and you're in Herod's prison, take your thoughts back to the character of God who saved you. And despite being almighty God, he's not unapproachable, he's not cold, he's not biting, he's loving and he's personal and he's with you right now. He has shaped you and placed you and died for you and pursued you and called you and saved you and redeemed you and cares about you. He's intricately, he's intricately interested in every detail about you. He is a good, good, good God. And when everything else fails you, Keep reminding yourself of both of those things. When you pray and things don't change, when you hope for something and all you get is disappointment, when you surrender something to God and it goes the opposite of how you wanted it to go, when somebody else gets the answer that you were seeking, when the healing, the solution, the change, these things just aren't showing up, tell yourself this, I know he's good and I know he can do this. And if you add those two things together, it will bring you to an awesome solution. If he's good and he can, but he's not right now, then he must be up to something I can't see. 
He must have reasons for what he's doing that are beyond me. He must be working on levels and planes that I can't grasp a hold of. And let that drive you to a point of even if it has to be painful surrender. Let that give you permission to continue to worship him while you wait. Let that lead you to trusting him even as you question everything. I mean, I'm, I'm thankful, right, that the Jesus who walked through Gennesaret, changing the lives of everyone he touched, is the same Jesus I pray to today. But that's not what I'm most thankful for. I'm most thankful that he has an answer and is my hope in every season of life. And so whether I'm in paradise or prison, he's my solution. Whether I'm in Gennesaret or, or the Paris airport, right? He is the answer. Whether I'm in the season of celebration or season of suffering, he is my hope. Because he has a solution to all of it. Let's pray. Father, I just want to, I want to close this time, Lord, just praying, praying over these people. God, if there's somebody who today, their, their, their life is more marked by paradise. They're in a good season. They, they, they have health. Uh, marriage is going well. They have, they have success. They've had promotions. They've had all kinds of, you, just your blessings are on them right now, Lord. We, we're so, so very thankful for those seasons. And I pray that they would just ride it out to its fullest conclusion and that their, uh, their wonder this morning, their enjoyment, their excitement would be centered in you that they would recognize you as the giver of all good things. And Father, would they just take a moment right now just to praise you, to, to say without any conflict in their heart, all my life you've been so, so good because it's easy to say right now. But Lord, may, may that praise be true. And then Lord, I want to pray for those who is really hard to sing that song this morning. Because it's, it's not deniable that you've been faithful. It's not deniable that you've been so, so good. It just doesn't feel like it sometimes. And Lord, I'm thankful that you're greater than our emotions. You're greater than our feelings. I'm thankful that you are up to more than we could ever see or imagine or know. And so I pray that right now for those in the throes of it, that what they would just cling to is the reality that you can and the reality that you're good, and if you're not, you must have a reason. Lord, may they, may they hold tightly to that. May your spirit guard their hearts and minds in Christ Jesus with the peace of God that passes all understanding. And would you sustain them and carry them when they have nothing left to give? Lord, I'm thankful that in the paradise you're there and in the prison you're there. And that ultimately, every one of our stories, if we have put our faith and trust in you, ends in paradise, and it ends in paradise forever. And so from now until that day, would you, find, would you find us as a church faithful to share your gospel, to share your story, to share your hope with people who need to hear it? And Lord, if there's anybody in our midst who has not trusted in Jesus Christ, I pray that right now, today would be their day of salvation. And we ask this in his awesome and powerful name. Amen. Listen, I'm so incredibly grateful for each and every one of you.